Barbie, you're looking so great. Here's new great shape Barbie doll. Keep it going, Barbie. Ooh, Barbie, meet leotards. Love your leg warmer. Round and round. Great workout, Barbie. Hurry, headbands in your bag. Where are you off to? Looking that great, it's gotta be a date. New great shape Barbie doll comes with leg warmers, bag, and exercise book. Fighter and T Bone, and we are bringing to you the internet's only podcast solely dedicated to uh, pairing a perfect movie to your workout. And today we have got something super special, uh, kind of one for the ladies, perhaps. Um, but there's a there's something in it for everybody, um, and it's probably one of the few films that's universally loved. By everyone, men, women, children, uh-huh. old, young, nine to ninety-nine. <laughs> it's it's a great film. Nineteen eighty seven's The Princess Bride, um, by Rob Reiner, written by Bill Goldman. Um, so we're super excited to bring this special Valentine's Day episode to you. Yes. Um, so just a couple of quick things. Uh, we got to get off. Uh, you know, I hate to open the show, um, you know, like this, but um, we're going to do that. Um, as you guys know, uh, Valentine's Day is coming up, and what perfect time for you to buy your lovely lady a special treat from your boys at Pump Action. Yes, women love nothing better than to be told they're not fit enough. <laughs> so... We have a special Arnold workout plan for you, dedicated to the man himself, our illustrious god, Arnold Schwarzenegger. It is a seven-day plan, um, broken up entirely by body parts, um, so that your lady, you know, can get fit and, uh, you know, become the the arm candy that you deserve. Um, So anyway, but yeah, we have those for sale for uh, 20 bucks. Uh, Like I said, each... Workout plan is as um, inspired by an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Uh, we have True Lies. Uh, we have the Terminator Tricep Plan. We have uh, Predator. Uh, I think Pectorals. Uh, so anyway, uh, Total Recall. Uh, we have Total Recall one is all glutes, and it's uh, you know correctly titled "Get Your Ass to Mars." <laughs> so uh, anyway, or get your ass to the gym. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so no, we have those for sale. Um, so if you're looking for fi- uh, to, for something for your, for your lady uh, or for yourself, uh, maybe you want to get fit for your lady because uh, maybe you're the one that's embarrassed to be seen with. But uh, we have those for sale, 20 bucks. 
And then we also put together um, about 10 different um, fake album covers for CDs that we have also made. And uh, those are also 20 bucks. That's shipping included. You get a nice 12 by 12 um, color print. Um, I can even we can even sign it if you want. Um, I don't know if it'll ever be worth anything, but <laughs> it'll be worth less after we sign. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, you probably. Uh, but anyway, it's perfect for uh, you know those record frames, um, fitting in those record frames. They look gonna look great on your home gym wall. And then we also include a CD, uh, a fake CD soundtrack. It's real songs, but it's not for a real movie. They're just compiled by us. Uh, you know, ten perfect songs to match your workout to. And uh, last time we, we uh, had one sale by a man in Spain. And guess what? Good news, everyone. He wants his money back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, uh, surprisingly not. Um, we sold another one. Uh, yeah, this one from a guy in Nebraska. So we're moving up in the world. Right. We got a listener in Nebraska. And he actually sent us a thank you letter once again um, upon receiving his awesome package in the mail. It says, Dear Ty and Bone, greetings from snowy Nebraska. I'm a huge fan of the show. You guys are so much fun to listen to. Keep creating this awesome content. I want to thank you gentlemen for introducing me to the action movie-inspired workout plan. Little did I know that something as seemingly simple as a fitness routine could have such a profound impact on my life. From the moment I began following your program... I felt like the protagonist in my own action-packed adventure. The intensity of the workouts combined with the adrenaline pumping music and imagery you've incorporated ignited a fire within me that I never knew existed. See what I did there? It's a cheap plug for the CD. So he, he's actually, you know, condoned. So I, I like that. Thank you so much. Um, it says this workout plan has not only transformed me phys- my physical strength, but has also instilled in me a newfound sense of confidence and resilience. I have learned to push past my limits, overcome obstacles, and embrace challenges head on, just like the heroes in the action films you talk about. Uh, Thank you for sharing your expertise, your passion, and inspiration. You all have not only changed my approach to fitness, but I've also changed my life in ways I never thought possible. With the sincerest gratitude, Lance Uppercut. So thank you so much, Lance. Um, we are going to, um, you know, put you up on our wall. Uh, the, we're going to frame this letter and put it up in our <laughs> dojo, right along with Esteban's. So thank you guys very much. And if you want your very own um, action-packed uh, workout plan or, or CD, you can reach us at uh, Pump Action underscore Podcast on Instagram, or you can email us at Pump Action Pod at Gmail Twenty bucks. I think it's a steal. Like I said, we, we, we're just, we just need a new mic. Uh, the last Carl Weathers one, people were saying we're, we're a little low, <laughs> that they are cranking it up to, to 30 on their radios. And so um, it's all in the mics, people. So anyway, well, now that that business is out of the way, um, let's get on with the show. Uh, Princess Bride, uh, 1987. Uh, were you a big fan of this film growing up? Oh, yeah. Yeah, same. Yeah, uh, we... Uh, this was one of those movies that we had on uh, VHS that was either taped off TV or bootlegged from an actual copy. Um, so we just had it like on a blank VHS. Nice. Possibly with another movie on there, I don't remember. But <laughs> double yeah. double loading. 
yeah, I didn't see it in the theater, but we had a copy like pretty not long after it came out. So. Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I saw it in the theater. Um, I was <clears> probably eighty seven. I was probably maybe in fourth grade or fifth grade. Um, my mom was a teacher, and I went to school with her. And um, back in those days, she had a just a, like a, a dowel rod um, to like for the pointer for the mm-hmm. chalkboard because there was no smart boards back yeah. then. It was like chalk, <laughs> and so she, when you had to point to things that you wanted children to pay attention to, and she had this wood dowel rod. And after school, I would take that wood dowel rod and I would fence <laughs> everything um, because of Inigo Montoya because of this film. Uh, to me, there's a handful of perfect films and right along with like Back to the Future, I think is a perfect film. Uh, Jaws, I think is also like a perfect film. And this is also to me, a perfect film. It's lightning in a bottle. Everything that you needed to make this movie happen, happened. Director, cast, Budget, everything, the story is fantastic. Um, I cannot wait to hear what you have dug up on it. There's a lot of information <clears throat> out there. I recently saw a book that yeah. Carrie always, or oh, oh he's, he's, it's the man with the hardest name to pronounce in, in um, Hollywood. Elways. Elways. But then I also heard that it was Elwes, like Elvis, but with the W, Elwes. Mm. So I think I heard that on Conan O'Brien or something like that. He was talking about that. So, um, but I, I always want to say, like you said, always, uh, Elwes. Um, so I always get it mixed up in my brain. But I think it's El, Elwes. But anyway, um, he wrote a book called As You Wish. And it was mm-hmm. all about like his production diary on this film. I came to it late. Um, I just now found out about it yeah, like two it days ago. Like 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. I had no clue. Yeah, but I did read there isn't, well, it's not really a novelization because it's based on a book, but I have the tie-in book, and I did read the book. We can talk a little bit about the differences between the book and the film, but for the most part, it's pretty spot on. Um, Everything that that the book is, has uh, the film has omitted, they pretty much do it through dialogue. They tell Mm -hmm. you what happened, all you need to know. So, um, like I said, to me, it's a perfect film. So, what do you have for us about The Princess Brain? Okay. It is a 1987 American fantasy adventure comedy film. Probably action and romance in there, too. Yeah, adventure, yeah, totally. (laughs) Uh, Directed and co-produced by Rob Reiner and starring, I'm just going to say always. Always. that's what I said my whole life. Okay. I'll get confused if I don't do that. So, Carrie, always, if you're listening, you know, apologies. (laughs) Whatever, however you say your name. He's going to fire off a letter, (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) Robin Wright, Mandy Patinkin, Chris Sarandon, Wallace Shawn, Andre the Giant, and Christopher Guest. Adapted by William Goldman from his 1973 novel of the same name, it tells the story of a swashbuckling farmhand named Wesley, accompanied by companions befriended along the way, who must rescue his true love, Princess Buttercup, from the odious Prince Humperdinck. The film preserves the novel's metafictional narrative style by presenting the story as a book being read by a grandfather to his sick grandson. Yeah, the book actually kind of starts that way, too, if you've never read the book. Um, It starts with a fictional story told by William Goldman, um, where he is 
going away. Well, it's, he basically says that this is the greatest book that he's never read. Mm-hmm. That when he was sick, his father read the book to him as a child, and he grew up loving this book. So flash forward like thirty years, um, it's his son's birthday. He's out of the, he's out of town. Like he's from like Illinois or something. Um, he's out of town um, in Los Angeles. He is going to miss his son's birthday. So he's like, oh, this is like in the book. This is fake too, by the way. Yeah. It's all written. Um, he's he's in Los Angeles, like trying to do something with a screenplay or something. Um, and it's his son's birthday. He's missing the birthday. He's super bummed about it. He doesn't know what to get his son. Um, he's trying to go back to go back home. There's snowstorms. He's not the flights have been canceled, so he's like super bummed. But he tells his wife, um, you know, run down to the bookstore and get this book that my father used to read to me. It's my favorite book of all time, uh, and I want you to give that to him for his birthday. So she does it, and you know, flash forward. He comes back and he asks his son, like, you know, did you like that book? And the son was like, eh, it's okay. Well, he's like, it's okay. Like, this is the greatest book that's ever been written. Uh, this is, you know, full of, like, revenge and monsters. And, you know, he's like, how could you not love this book? And so he picks up the book, uh, or the son tells him, like, eh, I only read a couple of pages and kind of got bored with it. He's like, yeah, how could you be bored with this book? So he picks up the book and he starts reading it and he finds out that, his father only read him all the good parts. He never read the whole book. And so um, that's kind of the story behind the, the book. Uh, he is abridging it, I guess, in, in creating, like he's kind of one-upping his father and he's going to publish just the good parts or the good version. Yeah. And um, so it's kind of a neat little setup. And it's like some of it's beat for beat, word for word from what um, Peter Falk says in the film to like, um, anyway, what, what he tells his grandson. So it's a pretty cool little setup. I like that idea. It's a really clever way to, um, start a book because it's all fake. There's just no S Morgenstern. There's no, you know, Florin, right. there's no Gilder. There's, but it's, it's, I don't know. It's super cool, but, but go ahead. Yeah. So it came out in 1973 and the full title of the book is the princess bride S. Morgan Stern's classic tale of true love and high adventure, the good parts version. Uh, and as you mentioned, it's it's uh, written as a fake abridgment of a longer novel written by the fictitious S. Morgan Stern. And Goldman adds, you know, quote-unquote commentary throughout the book. And the, uh, the, the quote-unquote longer version of the novel, according to Goldman, contains boring political commentary. Yeah. There's like one scene where he's like, there's 80 pages on everything that she packed after she's yeah. leaving the farm <laughs> to go live with, with Prince Butter, or uh, with Prince Upperding. Yeah. Uh, so there is one scene that Gold, that the story is, you know, in the real world, or sorry, in the book, there's one scene that Goldman wrote and added it to Morgan Stern's version, but the publishers made him take it out. And in, in the book, Goldman says that if people want to read the scene, they should write to the publishers. Yes. And so that's in the book and is fake. So in the real world, people actually wrote to the publishers asking about this missing part of the book. Uh-huh. And the publishers in real life actually sent letters to these people 
saying that they couldn't release this unwritten stuff because there was there were legal issues between William Goldman and S. Morgenstern's estate. That is awesome. Uh, which you know is if you're losing track, that's not true. That's all fake. Yeah. Uh, and this went on for like several decades, and I guess nowadays he actually wrote that deleted scene or whatever, and you can find it online. Yeah. So in the real world, the book is based on stories that Goldman told his daughters. He had two daughters. I think in the book he has a son, Mm -hmm. which is not true. Yeah. Uh, And they wanted to hear stories about princesses and brides. And he initially wrote the first chapter about Buttercup, and he got about four pages into a second chapter about uh, the man she was going to marry. But he ran out of ideas and didn't know where to go. And that's when he came up with the idea of writing a fake, abridged novel. The original version didn't sell well at the time, and another author named Spider Robinson published excerpts excerpts in an anthology in 1980, and Robinson believes that this helped the book find its audience. Later editions of the, of the novel have an added chapter about Wesley and Buttercup's daughter with more commentary by Goldman. Um, Goldman actually wanted to work on a true full sequel to the novel to be released for the 50th anniversary in 2023, but in a 2007 interview, he stated he was having trouble coming up with ideas, and unfortunately, he died in 2018 without the sequel book being made. Mm. Did you have the version with uh, that chapter with their daughter in it? I don't think so, because the one I have is like it's mm. the movie tie-in version. Okay. Um, but I know there was like a, a version that was released. I was looking it up on Amazon um, because I was so inspired by this project that I actually incorporated <clears throat> it into a school project too. So I'm making the kids watch it, and then we're going to like do something with the characters, like sketch out characters from the show. But anyway, so I was looking up like a, a newer version, and there are, there's like a 35th anniversary yeah. edition. I think there's a 40th anniversary edition or something like that. So I'm assuming that those were the ones, because I only have the movie tie-in. Yeah, so. there's, he did, there were several versions released, and like in each one, he wrote like a tiny bit more at the end, like in the metafictional universe. Yeah. Like, I think in the first, or not the original, but the next version that came out, he writes something like, I'm working on this next chapter. And then yeah. in the next version, that chapter's actually in there. So I don't know. There's <laughs> a few awesome. different versions. Well, now I must collect them all. <laughs> uh, so at one point, William Goldman said he had gotten more responses on The Princess Bride than on everything else he had ever written combined. Yeah, I read, um, there's a commentary track, and he says, this and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid are the, the he's like, he, he hates all of his other writing, <laughs> except for those two things. He's like, these are my favorite things that I ever wrote, which is a lot, because he did a lot, you know what I mean? So um, he, he, found, he found this script, this, book very endearing to him and he just i don't know all right that's a little bit about the book and we're going to get into the movie now uh so rob reiner had been given a copy of the book by his father carl reiner and he became a huge fan of it after the success of reiner's this is spinal tap in 1984 he realized he finally had the filmmaking skills to pull off a filmed adaptation of the novel During the production of Stand By Me, which was also directed by Reiner, he spoke to an executive at Paramount Pictures and said that he wanted his next film to be The Princess Bride. The executive shut his idea down, saying a number of other studios had already attempted a film adaptation without success. 
So way back in 1973, 20th Century Fox had paid William Goldman half a million dollars for his screenplay and the film rights to the book. Film director Richard Lester was hired, and the movie almost got made. Lester had previously directed the Beatles films A Hard Day's Night and Help, and in the 1980s he would direct Superman 2 and 3. He was the director on Superman 2 that replaced Richard Donner. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, before and they had to reshoot like eighty percent of the movie. Have you ever seen the Donner cut? You can come up on a tangent. <laughs> yeah, no, I haven't seen it. Oh. Or I saw the cut, but I didn't. We'll save that for the for yeah. the next show. Uh, let's see, future show. Yeah. Uh, before it could really get off the ground, however, the head of production at Fox was fired. Goldman bought back the film rights using his own money. Other directors who expressed interest in adapting the book included Francois Truffaut, Robert Redford. And Norman Jewison, who had who would later direct, or he had directed Moonstruck, Fiddler on the Roof, and The Cincinnati Kid, yeah. among many others. And at one point, Christopher Reeve was loosely loosely attached to play Wesley. I could see that. Yeah, I think he could have pulled it off. Yeah, definitely. So coming back to the mid '80s, Reiner was eventually able to get financial support to make the film from Norman Lear, whom he had worked on with All in the Family, and this is Spinal Tap. 20th Century Fox was again attached to distribute the film. Almost from the beginning, Reiner wanted Carrie Elway's to play Wesley. Reiner had been impressed by Elway's performance in 1986's Lady Jane, and he flew out to Germany to meet Elway's to make sure he was right for the part. A few other actors auditioned for the role, but of course Elway's got the part. Robin Wright wasn't cast for the role of Buttercup until about a week before filming started. Other actresses who auditioned for the part included Uma Thurman, Meg Ryan, Sean Young, Courtney Cox, and Whoopi Goldberg. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember her <laughs> saying that. And they also, in the 70s version, um, Carrie Fisher was also attached. Right. Yeah, her with, with the Christopher Reeves version. Hmm. Uh, as the story goes, Wright auditioned and impressed casting director Jane Jenkins, who set up a meeting with uh, Rob Reiner at his house. And these are the words of Jenkins. The doorbell rang. Rob went to the door, and literally as he opened the door, Wright was standing there in this little white summer dress with her long blonde hair, and she had a halo from the sun. She was backlit by God. And William Goldman looked across the room at her, and he said, Well, that's what I wrote. (laughs) That's awesome. It was the most perfect thing. That is awesome. So she got the part. Yeah. Mandy Patinkin and Wallace Shawn were cast early on for their respective parts. At one point, Danny DeVito was considered for the role of Vicini instead of Shawn. In the early 1970s, William Goldman's first choice for Fezzik was actually Andre the Giant, but because of his wrestling schedule, he was not available at the time. Mm-hmm. Goldman's second choice was Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes, I did know that, actually. Who was still more or less unknown other than to the bodybuilding community. By the time the movie was finally finally able to get made, Arnold was, of course, a huge star and yeah. affordable. Yeah, I love the story of Andre's uh, audition. I don't know if you if you have anything on that or not. Um, legendary drinker uh, Andre the Giant. <laughs> so they were trying to meet with him to pitch him the idea, but like what you were saying is like his wrestling schedule made that almost impossible. Like nobody could. And this is before cell phones. You got to remember this. Um, so they could not find him or they couldn't get a hold of him. Um, they said that he was in Japan or he was just, he was all over the world. 
Well, long story short, they had heard that he was in Paris, France. And so Goldman and Reiner flew to Paris. And there, I guess there was a bar that he always hung out at. And um, they walked into that bar and they asked, you know, have you seen this Andre here? And he's like, he's over there at the bar. And Reiner talks about like, it's the, he was the biggest man I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> And so that I guess right there at the bar, they pitched him the idea, and he said uh, that he was interested. And he said, well, what, what do we, how do we do this? And he's like, well, let's just go up to, to the, a room, and we'll run some lines and see how you do. And so I guess they got a hotel room that, that in the bar, or the hotel. The bar was in the hotel. So they went up to the room, and he didn't speak very good English. Yeah. And so they were trying to, like, tell him you know, what to say. So most of his stuff was phonetically. He delivers it phonetically, which is why he's kind of hard to understand right. in the film. But, um, so he, he runs his lines and they're like, you know, it, there's no other choice. Like we have to have this guy, you know, he's Fezzik. Like the book, he is that character. And if you've ever read the book, I highly encourage you to do so. It goes into his backstory. There's no other person in the world that could have played that part at that time other than Andre. So after he gets done reading his lines, um, I guess they're Goldman and uh, Reiner kind of looks at each other and go, eh, we'll let you know, you know what we think. And he said that Arnold, or Arnold, pff, Andre had turned to leave and he turned back around and he said, I hope that you pick me. And they're like, how could we not? <laughs> like, so they're like, they're going to, I guess they're going to kind of, kind of leave him hanging a little bit. And they're like, no, you got the part. You got the part. <laughs> And so I guess he had to kind of clear his schedule. But I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. You know, like they chased him down to find him, you know. So. so, yeah, and that was, so they couldn't afford Arnold. They go back to get Andre. Um, uh, so, right, I mean, right before he told that story, I guess that this happened. Um, they want to get him, but the filming would have conflicted with a wrestling match in Japan that would have paid Andre $5 million. Ooh. On top of that, um, he didn't feel he was right for the part because he was French and the part was in English and he was a wrestler and not an actor. Casting director Jenkins auditioned a few other actors for the part, including Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Lou Ferrigno, and Carol Streakin, who you may know as Lurch from the Addams Family movies, oh. among other parts. I thought that was a Lurch. I was thinking Ted Cassidy. Um, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> I, I, you know, also speaking of, where was uh, Richard Keel? I wonder oh, what. yeah, I don't know. <laughs> he might have they might have, they might have looked at his picture. And, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, oddly enough, uh, Liam Neeson auditioned for the part, but uh, they turned him down. He's not tall enough. I know. So the wrestling match in Japan was canceled, and uh, he has accepted the role after meeting in a hotel room with Rob Reiner and William Goldman. Uh, he was later quoted as saying playing the role of Fezzik was a gratifying experience because everyone treated him as a regular person instead of some kind of freak in nature. So, uh, I'm going to mention a few other casting choices here in the uh, kind of the, the framing story, the setup. The grandson is played by Fred Savage, and his grandfather, who reads the book to him, played by Peter Falk. Love. Both those guys. Yeah. Well, I guess Fred Savage kind of caught a little bit of heat, I think, for something. 
That was a huge Wonder Years fan. I have the series on DVD. I watch it all the time. Uh, Prince Humperdinck was played by Chris Sarandon, who's awesome in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christopher Guest, who's also awesome, plays Count Rugen. Mm-hmm. Uh, also appearing in the movie is uh, Peter Cook, Mel Smith, Carol Kane, Billy Crystal, uh, several other people. I don't know. I think they're mostly English actors. Yeah, I think they're in England. Um. So the filming commenced in late 1986 in various locations around England and Ireland. Establishing shots of the Cliffs of Insanity were filmed at the Cliffs of Moher in Ireland. Ireland. Uh, the Battle of Wits scene was filmed at Lathkill Dale and Kalesdale. I'm probably butchering all these names. Other filming locations included Sheffield, Buckinghamshire, Derbyshire, and Kent. The last scenes of the movie to be filmed were of the grandfather and grandson, and those were filmed in Shepperton Studios in Surrey. Rob Reiner rented a house in England near the filming locations and often had the cast over for meals and get-togethers. Mm. This helped create a sense of family and improved the cast's performances throughout the filming. Yeah, I love these. Like he cho- chose England not only because it's like you know, authentically like where the story is set, but he's also talking about um, you know England. He's like, you can pretty much choose from the best of the best. You can choose the best makeup artist. You can choose the best costume designers. You can choose the best um, because, you know, and I hope the English don't uh, are upset by this, but they just don't have a thriving film, you know, community. Or a, a, So he's like, they had all those costumes just, you know, laying around. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, so we, we had access to the best that England had to offer, which I think is another reason why this movie is so damn good, mm-hmm. you know. Mandy Patinkin and Carrie Elways were trained in both left-handed and right-handed fencing by Bob Anderson and Peter Diamond. I don't think I mentioned Mandy Patinkin plays Inigo Montoya. I didn't mention that name. Uh, both Anderson and Diamond worked on the original Star Wars trilogy. Patinkin and Elways spent three weeks learning to fence and even spent most of their downtime training. At the behest of Bob Anderson, the pair even learned each other's choreography so they could anticipate movements and avoid any accidents. Patinkin and Elways subsequently performed much of their duel scene themselves, and the only time stunt doubles were involved was for the somersaults near the end of the fight. Mm -hmm. So prior to filming, Andre the Giant had undergone major back surgery. And as such, he had trouble supporting the weight of Carrie Elways during their fight scene. Elways was actually walking along a series of ramps just out of camera view while quote-unquote hanging on Andre's back. Wide shots actually used Andre's stunt double, a man named Randy Morris. At the end of the film, when Andre is carrying Robin Wright, Wright had to be suspended by cables to help support her weight. Miracle Max and his wife were played by Billy Crystal and Carol Kane who prepared for their roles by working out a backstory for their characters and developing a rapport. During filming, Reiner let them improvise uh, some of their interactions. The soundtrack for the film was composed by Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits and released by Warner Brothers Records in the U.S. in November of 1987. The song Storybook Love was produced by Mark Knopfler and performed by Willie DeVille, and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song. It lost out to Dirty Dancing's I've Had the Time of My Life. Oh, why? I mean, I get it. That's a great song. <laughs> I mean, you can't compete with that sax solo, but yeah. still. like, If any other movie was up against that, that, that 
song's got to win. Yeah, so good. Rob Reiner was a big fan of Mark Knopfler, and Knopfler agreed to do the film on one condition. He wanted Reiner to put the USS Coral Sea baseball cap Reiner wore in This Is Spinal Tap somewhere in The Princess Bride. Reiner didn't have the original hat anymore, but he found a replacement and put it in the grandson's room. It wasn't until much later that Mark Knopfler said he was just joking. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <clears throat> the Princess Bride premiered in Toronto, Canada during the 1987 Toronto International Film Festival in early September. It went into wide release later that year in North America. On a $16 million budget, it grossed $30.8 million in Canada and the U.S. Reviews at the time and to this day have been largely positive. Siskel and Ebert gave the film two thumbs up. Time Magazine said it was fun for the whole family and one of the best films of the year. The New York Times praised the cast and sweetness of the film. Film critic Dalton Mullins said it was one of the best love stories ever filmed. Princess Bride currently has a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 8.5 out of 10. It has a 77 out of 100 on Metacritic, and on a scale of A to F, Cinema Score has it as an A+. Mm-hmm. In 2000, Total Film Magazine rated it the 38th greatest comedy of all time. In 2005, it was ranked 40th in BBC Channel 4's 100 Greatest Family Films, ahead of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Beetlejuice. Channel 4 also rated it the 46th best comedy film of all time. In 2006, the Writers Guild of America ranked William Goldman's screenplay the 84th best screenplay of all time. The American Film Institute said it was the 88th greatest love story of all time. And it ranks 50th on Bravo's 100 Funniest Movies. In 2016, it was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry. Carrie always stated in 2017 that 30 years later, people still come up to him and quote lines from the movie. Wallace Shawn says that whenever he does something trivial like drop his car keys, someone will shout inconceivable at him. <laughs> so... Um, it was not an initial box office success, uh, at least money-wise, but it quickly became a cult film after its release to the home video market. In North America, it was released on VHS and Laserdisc in 1988. It was again reissued on VHS in 1994 and later on video CD by Philips. Laserdisc versions by the Criterion Collection were released in 1989 and again in 1997. In 1998, it was released on VHS and DVD, and on DVD again a year later. 2006 and 7 also saw DVD releases, as well as a digital download on iTunes in 2007. And in 2009, it finally came to Blu-ray. The Criterion Collection again released the film on DVD and Blu-ray in 2018, and as of this recording, it is currently streaming on Disney+, and I believe available to rent on several other streaming services. So if for some reason you haven't seen this, it is very widely available in many formats. Mm-hmm. So you shouldn't have any trouble tracking it down. And if you haven't seen it, go watch yeah. it. Do you have, is there like some preferred version that you have? Do you have like the Criterion Blu-ray? I, I do. I actually have the Criterion <laughs> 4K version, storybook <laughs> version. Yeah. I mean, hey, if you guys like inferior uh, viewing experience, I mean, that's, that's your bag, but... Not mine. I want to see everything when I watch a movie. No. 
Um, yeah, but there's nothing really that's different about it. There's no deleted scenes. Um, it really just comes with an audio commentary. Uh, there are some production diary uh, videos, but I haven't got to them all, um, that Carrie always uh, recorded. There's um, an audio book version where they you know, um, recite the book um, as the movie's playing. That's read by Rob Reiner. Uh, the coolest one, though, if you have to get one to me, is get the Amazon version, um, the streaming version. So, um, spoilers, we're not supposed to show films unless we have permission. <laughs> so I hope my boss isn't listening to this, or I hope 20th Century Fox isn't listening to this. But, um, so I, it, so we're only supposed to go through certain websites, da 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 da, da. Long story short, I streamed it through um, uh, Amazon, um, you can. I bought it. It was on sale for like seven ninety nine. So I'm like, of course I'm going to buy this because it's always available if I'm on a trip or like whatever, watching on my phone. And there is a way. It's like a. It's a feature on the streaming version that pops up little trivia bits. It's like remember that old show on VH1 called yeah. Pop Up Video. Yeah. It's like that. So as you're watching it, little things will pop up. Uh-huh. Like, did you know? Like da 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 da. So I thought that was pretty cool um, as I was showing that to the kids at school. Um, that ver- I don't know how that feature got turned on. I didn't even know that it was. And, of course, I had no idea because I'm old how to turn it off. Right. And the kids were like, oh, let me show you. And here you go, Mr. Fighter. And they just turned it right off. So, um, but, yeah, it, that's a cool version um, because, like I said, it's got like, uh, like a, it's like VH1 pop-up video with a movie, which I was like, they need to do more of that. That's really yeah. neat. That's a neat feature. So, so that's on Amazon. Yeah, that's on Amazon. Yeah, yeah, and then some of these versions, there's like a bunch of extras. Like, there's one that's got like a little booklets and a map or something. And yeah, there's various versions with various commentaries and behind the scenes things. Yeah, making of. So there's a lot of ways to watch this and a lot of different extras you can get. Yeah. So in 2006, work began on a musical adaptation of The Princess Bride. But the project was abandoned in 2007 when William Goldman supposedly was demanding too large a share of the profits. In 2013, Disney started work on a stage musical. And in 2016, Rob Reiner said the project was still in development. But uh, I don't know how that's going now. I don't know. I saw what they did with Willow, and they just they need to just keep their grimy hands <laughs> off the Princess Bride. <laughs> Several board games have been adapted from the film as far back as 1988 as well as in 2008, 2013, and 2020. I, th- yeah, I think there was a VHS version in 1988 that came with a little fold-out board game. Oh, really? It's kind of collectible nowadays. There were also several video games produced, as well as action figures by such companies as Super 7 and the McFarlane Toys. Yeah, I was going to say, McFarlane Toys just released a series of Princess Bride figures and if you want them, they're all on clearance right now at Target. Um, I just don't. It doesn't really fit with the aesthetics of my other collection. Yeah. If if uh, I love fantasy stuff, but you know, it just doesn't fit with my other. And oh, like, I have to put a foot down on my collecting. The, like uh, my my wife says, you can't collect everything. Oh, the the it. Super Seven ones look like the old Star Wars figures. Those so would be the ones have, I yeah. think to be to get. Yeah. So in 2019, Sony Pictures CEO Tony Vincincara claimed there was interest in remaking the film. Society or social media reaction to this news was extremely negative, and even Carrie always said in reference to one of his lines in the film, 
There's a shortage of perfect movies in this world. It would be a pity to damage this one. Agreed. So, what do you have to say about The Princess Bride? Uh, I mean, you've pretty much nailed it. I don't. There's not really a whole lot for me to add. Um, I'm just going to kind of talk just quickly a little about the, the book a little bit more because I just got finished reading it. Um, some of the discrepancies. Um, the first thing is that the pit of despair um, was only conceived um, on set because they, the book he has something called a zoo of death. They're talking about like how much Humperdinck is a hunter. He loves hunting. And so he's created this five level zoo of death um, where like the, as you go up, like the more dangerous the animals become. <laughs> um, and so he's always going in there to hunt. And so um, instead of taking Wesley to the pit of despair, which was made up for the movie, um, he takes him to the zoo of death, but it's still basically the same thing. There's a machine down there that he hooks him up to. Um, but it's kind of funny. Rob Reiner has said like, you know, I, we really wanted that zoo of death, but it just, it wasn't in the budget. So they kind of had to, to wing it. Um, other than that, um, that's pretty much like the, the biggest, like major discrepancy. Um, the other things are just little things. Um, like in the novel, Prince Humperdinck, he wanted to, not marry Buttercup at first because he wanted to marry this lady named Princess Norina of Gilder. And this is kind of why the Gilder, why they're trying to go to war with Gilder. Um, because it's never really explained um, other than war is just good for business, you know. Um, but it says, shortly after Norina's arrival to Florin, a gust of wind blows a hat that she's wearing off of her head, revealing that she's bald. And this disgusts Humperdinck so much that he kicks her out of Florin, um, causing both kingdoms to become enemies and are on the verge of warring with each other. Uh, but like I said, in the film, they don't set that up. They're just already enemies. So right. that's the true story of why... Well, not true story. That's the real story of why Florin yeah. and Gilder were at war was because um, the princess was bald and it disgusted Humperdinck. Um... Oh my gosh! You pretty much, like I said, you, you pretty much got everything else. Uh, the video game. There's a lot of questions. All the kids at school were like, "What video game is he playing?" When Fred Savage, the movie opens with him in bed and he's right. playing like a baseball game. Um, and I was like, "I don't know," because I I have assumed it was a Nintendo game, just given the time. But apparently, the video game is called Hardball. Mm-hmm. Um, it was produced by Accolade Incorporated in 1985. It was widely available in the mid-'80s for the Commodore 64 uh, computer system. Um, It was a one- or two-player game, um, but the sound was not from the actual game. It was added later on. So all of you game nerds out there, if you find Hardball, do not expect that to be the same sound effects. (laughs) Um, We don't want you guys... Hollywood lied to you. Yeah, getting upset like, uh, TIE Fighter said it's the game! (laughs) So um, the other thing... um, how much, how lovable, and how what class acts these characters are. They really go into it more in the book. Like just, you know, it's hard to not like these characters. They're so endearing. Um, but in the in the film, Count Rugen wounds Inigo five times um, before and during the period of the film. The first two wounds he suffers are the cheek scars that he inflicted on Inigo when he was 11 years old. Mm -hmm. And then in the castle, he sword thrusts one arm and then the opposite shoulder, and then he throws a knife and hits him in the gut. So he's only wounded five times. Mm -hmm. 
So when Inigo finally gets the upper hand, I don't know if anybody out there knows it or not, he returns five wounds right. to um, uh, to Rugen. Uh, first the forearm, and then the shoulder, and then the two cheek slashes, and then finally he kills Rugen with a thrust to the stomach. So he almost gives him the exact same yeah. wounds that he suffered. So uh, no more, no less. I thought that was kind of cool, a very honorable thing to do. Um, Count Rugen's death in the original novel, though, was a lot more graphic. Um, after telling, you know, um, you, I, you know, like, I'll give you anything you want. He's like, I want my father back, you son of a bitch. Um, Inigo cuts Rugen's heart out. Um, and the reason why is because, you know, he did the same thing. You ripped my heart out. Right. I'm going to, you know, cut your heart out, too. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, so that's a little bit more graphic. And then um, some of the most quotable lines, um, the most unforgettable lines, are only mentioned a few times in the film. Um, As you wish is a huge one. It's only said seven times and only four times by Wesley, and it's said three times by the grandfather. Um, And then inconceivable is really only said five times, and then this famous line of, "Um, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die is said six times, um, and then four of those times is when he's repeating it at the very end of the right. duel. So, like I said, those lines that we remember are only said a handful, which, again, shows how beloved this film is and how unforgettable this film is. And I think that's kind of a neat thing about fairy tales is that they stay with us forever. You know, I was telling the kids at school, you know, you guys already know you know, so many fairy tales, whether it's The Three Little Pigs or, you know, Little Red Riding Hood or Goldilocks and the Three Bears, Hansel and Gretel, The Boy Who Cried Wolf. They know those stories, and we never forget those stories. And I think The Princess Bride is like that, too. Um, I don't think I've seen this film in probably three or four years, Mm -hmm. and um, as soon as you put it on, it just, it all clicks. Like, you know what's coming, you know what's what's happening. Um, You can quote along with it, even if you've only seen it one or two times. (laughs) Um, the kids at school are going bananas over it. They because most of them have never seen it or right. heard of it, and so I was like, "I'm going to show you the greatest fairy tale that you haven't heard." And they all like <laughs> Shrek, and I was like, "Well, I mean, I'm not taking anything away from Shrek because there's one thing that people know about me is my love and respect for Shrek, but not Shrek, but it's a great movie. Um, but The Princess Bride, um, and then I guess that's really about it. The only other thing is there was a deleted scene that just didn't make the film. That it was also kind of a funny story. So at the very end, um, that they filmed it, but I, it's probably lost over time. They wanted um, the Fred Savage character, the, the boy, the grandson, to kind of go to sleep. And then he's dreaming of the characters. And so um, the final scene was to be all of them on the white horses, um, you know, all four characters on the white horses. Um, and he said, and Rob Reiner says, like, so... They were setting up their because it's almost all of it. He said is filmed on a soundstage, except for you know some of the exteriors. And um, they had those those horses, and of course, um, uh, Carrie always Wesley Buttercup and um, Inigo could get on a horse fine, but they're like Andre the Giant. There was no way that a horse could support Andre the Giant because he yeah. weighed like 500, 600 pounds, and he wasn't like terribly fat either. Um, and so they had to rig up this wiring to do it. So he said that um, that morning, Andre had drank like two cases of wine. And he was pretty inebriated at that point. 
And so um, they had this harness hooked up to him, and they lift Andre up in the air, and he's just kind of like out of it, I guess, but not not like passed out, but just, you know, like he's kind of nodding in and out, I guess. And because of his weight, he's just like slowly <laughs> spinning. And so they're like trying to wait to, for to him to lower him down onto the horse. And the whole time he's like, hi, Rob. <laughs> he's like, he's like, so here he's like looking behind the camera at this 500 pound giant, just like slowly, like a, like a, on a pendulum, you know, just like slowly, like moving back and forth, waiting for him to lower him down on the horse. And I think he said, just like, ah, forget it. Like, it's not even worth it. So they like scrapped the whole scene. Um, but yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, uh, there's just, I, I feel like I say this all the time. There's so much to love in this film, but there really is. Um, I have the soundtrack album. Um, the score is beautiful. It really is. Mm-hmm. It's one of those ones that you can put on when you're playing D and D or, or whatever. I don't know. It's, it's the score is awesome. It's the perfect cast. I can't imagine anybody else, you know, playing those parts. The perfect director. I mean, Rob Reiner, he, whatever you say, he had a hot streak in yeah. the 80s, you know, with This Is Spinal Tap, and then he did Stand By Me. Um, he does this one. He does Misery, um, A Few Good Men. Um, I feel like there's, like, another one in there um, that I'm missing. But anyway, um, oh, When Harry Met Sally. That's another one that he did. So he has this real charm about the way he films things and I don't know how he presents just his eye is just so good for how he pictured. And like I said, this is like, it's almost beat for beat goes right along with the book. Um, I don't want to call this the good parts film, but like, this is, this is the book. Like if there's ever a movie that is just as good as the book, it's this one. And if you haven't read the book, read it. If you haven't seen the movie, go watch it. This is, Probably in my top, I'm going to probably say top six favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. I forget how much I love it until I watch it. And I, like, it just inspired me to want to do more with this. It was like, I love it so much, I just wanted to <laughs> share it. I was, I was like, kids, like, you know, I just, I was so excited about this project. And I'm, I'm so happy that they are enjoying it, you know, as much as, as we did. So it's got everything, the R O U S S, the sand. I guess there is another little scene in the book where she falls. They call it snow sand in the book. I think they call it lightning sand in the in the movie, um, where Wesley's you know diving down and he reaches up and he pulls up a skeleton at first, um, and he's like, "Oh no, like that's not her." So he like has to go back down to get her. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just it's such a classic that, I mean, it's quintessential eighties. It's must see. It's a must see movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it's one of those ones you have to see it before you die, and you will think as if you haven't. So yeah. Well, uh, moving on to our top ten list. Yes. Um, nothing too crazy today, but I do have a top ten highest grossing films of 1988. Oh, okay. It was such a good year for movies. Yeah. So this is uh, top ten. Highest grossing films worldwide of 1988. Number 10, Beetlejuice, 74 million. And this is in uh, 1988 dollars. Number 9, Cocktail, 78 million. Number 8, The Naked Gun from the Files of the Police Squad, yes. 79 million. Number 7, Die Hard, 83 million. 
Number six, Crocodile Dundee, two, 109 million. Number five, Twins. Oh, yes. 112 million. Number four, Big. Wow. 115 million. Number three, Coming to America, 128 million. Whoa. Number two, Rain Man. 173 million. Really? That's kind of surprising that's up there that high. Yeah. I don't think of that as being a me either. Huge box office hit, but me I guess either. it was. Two Tom Cruise movies in there. Yeah. And uh, the number one highest grossing film of 1988 with 238 million dollars worldwide is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Of course. <laughs> wow, what a year for movies. All of those yeah. movies come out in one year. That's crazy. And that's just 10 of them. There's like so many more good movies that came out in 88. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, yeah. I wish it was still like that. <laughs> yeah. You're lucky to get one good movie out of, coming out of here in this yeah. day and age, you know. So, well, I, I have a quick question for you before we, we wrap it up. Okay. Um, you know, we, we here at Pump Action Podcast, you know, we know that biceps are uh, a very important muscle, but probably your heart is also just as important. Um, you know, it's probably the biggest muscle in our bodies. And so, um, and the hardest working muscles in our bodies. So, um, do you have a favorite, um, I don't want to say romance movie cause it's going to get kind of weird in here, <laughs> but, um, do you have a favorite, like, um, I don't know, rom-com or do you have a favorite love story that, that you are, you know, kind of kin to? I mean, it's probably Princess Bride yeah. overall. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Disney's got some good ones. Some of their animated stuff. Yes. Yeah. I I don't know. If I thought about it, I might be able to come up with something. <laughs> Putting you on know. the spot like that. I'm like not a really movie. a big rom-com person. Yeah, not enough oily guys yeah. in it for us. Um, I do know that, you know, I hope you don't mind me sharing this, but that Princess Bride is so near and dear to your heart that it was a part of your wedding. I got to witness yeah. um, your <laughs> wedding. Um Wonderful ceremony, and then such a nice touch um, with that song as you guys walk down the aisle. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, Willie DeVille just brought it home, and that yeah. was so awesome. So I'm glad you guys did that. That's so unique. You don't ever hear that, you know. So I knew immediately what that was when I heard it. Uh, I got to say, my favorite kind of romance movie is don't you know laugh at me, but it's it's true. It's probably true romance. <laughs> Um, I took my wife, um, we were dating at the time, we started dating in um, uh, January of like night, or night 19, what am I thinking, 2000, I don't know, 13 or something like that, and February was um, at the Circle Cinema, they were showing a movie just for, um, you know, uh, Valentine's Day. And I was like, oh, they're, and they're playing True Romance. And she had never seen True Romance, which is another one of those films that's like, it's almost a perfect film <laughs> um, with, with everything hits, like the cast, the writing, the dialogue, so good. And she'd never seen it before. And so I took her to see it and she fell in love with True Romance. I was worried too, because like she didn't say two words during the whole movie. And I kept looking over <laughs> at her like, oh my God, like she's going to... Because, I mean, this is only like our probably fourth or fifth date at the time. Right. Um, so much so that, the you know, that Halloween the following year, she was like, I really want to dress up like Alabama and um, Clarence. And I was like, <gasps> I knew I married you for some reason. <laughs> I think I, I, I fell. I bent the knee right then and there. Uh, yeah. So, like, that's our favorite thing to do. It's in our house. We, um, you know, make like a nice dinner. We put on some... Uh, 
uh, Enrico uh, Palazzo uh, records um, and watch True Romance um, for us. But um, I don't know. This one might take the cake after upon this this uh, several viewings. Uh, Princess Bride is. I don't know. It might, it might be my new favorite. Uh, <laughs> my old new favorite. I always knew that it was, but I just forgot about it. But anyway, so uh, yeah. So uh, thank you guys. This is a very special treat. Uh, we don't normally do so like two right in a row like this, but um, we knew we wanted to pump this one out because it's a great film, one of our favorite films, and we're excited to talk about it. Um, if you didn't, if you fast-forwarded earlier through our, our spiel, uh, don't forget, we have a couple of things for sale. Um, Arnold-inspired workout routines, uh, 20 bucks. Um, you get like a seven-page plus a, a rate my workout based on Arnold's intense workout faces um, for sale um, and for 20 bucks. And then we also have some fake movie soundtrack album uh, art for sale as well, um, you know, endorsed by both of us. Uh, we've compiled not only the, um, the art, but also a fake soundtrack. Real music, but just it's not you know a real soundtrack to a real movie. Um, also compiled, and you'll get the CD, and you will get um, the artwork for 20 bucks. What a steal. Um, perfect for your gym, perfect for your home. So, um, yeah, you can reach us uh, at pumpaction underscore podcast on Instagram. You can also follow me on skoden underscore cinema on Instagram. Email us at uh, pumpactionpod at gmail.com. Go listen to Arno Core. Go watch Princess Bride. Um, I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to add? I think that'll do it. That'll do it. All right, then. As you wish. But it's as real as the feelings I feel. My love is like a storybook story. But it's as real as the feelings I feel. It's as real as the feelings I feel.